Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. It's Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and the state of the union is Delaware. Why not just go for Delaware? You can't say that it's great or thriving. Just pick one state where they like you, right? Just put all your eggs in the Delaware basket. I don't know. If you wanted to be honest, or if Biden did tonight, he could say the state of the union is improving, empirically speaking, but fragile psychologically, and it's stuck in a morass politically. Uh, The political depends on the psychological and the empirical, but it's very dysfunctional on its own. You know, that whole phrase, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. So maybe Biden should light upon a new formulation outside the state of the union is whatever thing. Or just go with the state of the union is not Ukraine. That'd get, you know, some approval. What the State of the Union really is, is challenged with a legislature basically incapable of rising to the challenge. Yesterday, we were told that there was maybe a small exception to that, an inspiring coming together of left and right to pass long overdue civil rights legislation. Lawmakers in the U.S. House just passed a bill that would make lynching a federal hate crime. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act is named after the Chicago teen whose lynching in 1955 in Mississippi helped spark the civil rights movement. Well, that at least is something. But I can't help but looking at it a little differently. The New York Times didn't mention when the last lynching, the action that this bill covered, when it actually occurred. USA Today and the Washington Post said 1968 was the last one, and they cited the NAACP. I checked out the NAACP's archives and listings. I couldn't see where they came up with that date. Many experts say Emmett Till's was the last lynching, though he wasn't hanged. Lynching does include hate crimes like what happened to Emmett Till in 1955. There's a list on Wikipedia of lynchings in the United States. Oddly, between 1964 and 1981, the list does not include any black people, but it does include white people killed in riots by black people. But the point is, 
that Congress got together to add to federal hate crimes penalties for anyone who commits actions that haven't occurred in 55 or possibly 70 years. As for modern day lynchings, like what happened with the dragging death of James Byrd or the recent murder of Ahmed Arbery, they're already covered by federal hate crime statutes. The point isn't pedantic. Bobby Rush and other members of the Congressional Black Caucus wanted this act passed, and it is important to remember our history and to try to overcome it. I certainly would have voted for the bill, but I would also suggest that anytime you have anti-racism legislation and that legislation is supported by Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene, fresh off their appearances at white nationalist conferences, as called out by the GOP, well, I would say that piece of legislation's anti-racism might fall short of the Ibram X. Kendi ideal. But the legislation does mark progress of a sort. Because just two years ago, Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, when faced with the same bill, put forth arguments like this. But this bill would cheapen the meaning of lynching by defining it so broadly as to include a minor bruise or abrasion. Our nation's history of racial terrorism demands more seriousness from us than that. At that time, Senator Cory Booker took umbrage. I do not need my colleague, the senator from Kentucky, to tell me about one lynching in this country. Today, two years later, Booker and Paul have worked together, it is reported. Paul is a co-sponsor of the Senate version of the anti-lynching bill, which he expects will get unanimous support. So that's something. That's not nothing, at least compared to the less-than-nothing stances of the past. Bobby Rush says the bill is decades past due. It's more like a century, more than a century past due. Anti-lynching legislation was first introduced by Missouri Republican Leonidas Dyer. The NAACP and W.E.B. Du Bois worked to pass it, and it did pass the Dyer anti-lynching bill, a version thereof, passed in 1922. But of course, it was filibustered in the Senate by Southern Democrats and died. Even FDR sacrificed anti-lynching legislation to keep his New Deal coalition together. Lynching was the shame, the crime of the lynchers, the shame of their backers in Washington, the shame even of those who traded it away as a political chip. In fact, pretty much the shame of America and all of us. I look at the passage of this bill not as a rebuke to the past or a rehabilitation for us in the present, but more like a bookend that defines a horrible act as officially taking more than 100 years to address. On the show today, I spiel about the COVID vaccine for kids. Flintstones chewables? No, but just about as effective. But first, we're joined again by Watergate chronicler Garrett Graff. The main thing I wanted to do in this part of our interview was what I called the Felt Pass, an examination of the man, Mark Felt, who would become known as Deep Throat, less an oracular hero and more of an operative who used leaks like most operatives use leaks to advance his career and punish his enemies. Maybe Nixon would be proud. Garrett Graff, author of Watergate, A New History, up next.
I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. So once again, I'm joined by Garrett Graff, the author of Watergate, A New History. And when we last left off, we analyzed Nixon's impact on all of the 20th century and 21st century and Donald Trump. But I want to go back and a huge innovation or a huge contribution of this book is that Mark Felt, who we know now to be Deep Throat, Garrett in his book traces out the whole arc of Deep Throat, knowing he's Deep Throat as Watergate plays out. It's really interesting. So first, Garrett, I think we should place where Felt is in the public imagination is dominated by the book that Woodward and Bernstein wrote about him. And at the time, I think he was having some cognitive problems and, you know, he was, uh, let us say, on death's door and they made sure that we knew about his sacrifice and his patriotism. All true, but there's a lot more going on here. So what should we know about Mark Felt? When did he, what did he know? And when did he know it? Yeah, and, and this becomes, you know, as I said when we were talking yesterday, that, you know, the the story that we sort of thought we know about Watergate turns out to not be what actually transpired at all. And Mark Feld is probably the clearest example of that, that the, the version of Deep Throat that has come down to us through the sort of gauzy technicolor history of Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman and Hal Holbrook in in All the President's Men is this idea that Deep Throat was this larger than life, you know, protector of the American way. You know, yes. he was out there, you know, saving the country from Richard Nixon. Right. And also somewhat omniscient. Like if you could just figure out how the Oracle at Delphi knew all the answers, you just had to know the right questions to ask. Yeah. And, and what it turns out is that's not what Mark Felt was doing at all. Mark Felt in the summer and fall of 1972, when he comes in to play the role of Deep Throat, this character, this you know anonymous source invented uh, to be part of the All the President's Men book by Woodward and Bernstein that comes out in the summer of 74. Uh, he is the deputy director, the te technically called the associate director of the FBI. And the FBI for 50 years has been led by J. Edgar Hoover. Mark Felt, his longstanding deputy, uh, the, sort of the last of the Hoover loyalists, assumes that he is set to be director of the FBI whenever Hoover steps down. J. Edgar Hoover, totally coincidentally, dies 
in May 1972, six weeks before the Watergate burglary. And Mark Felt finds out to his shock and horror that Nixon doesn't appoint him director of the FBI, but appoints as acting director this outsider named Patrick Gray. And so Mark Felt proceeds in the wake of the Watergate burglary to do everything he can to sink Pat Gray and try to oust Pat Gray and install himself as the director of the FBI. And so all <laughs> of this work that we've sort of long seen in history as being, you know, Deep Throat's anti-Nixon leaks actually is sort of knife-fighting, self-serving, bureaucratic internal politics at the Justice Department. And Mark Felt appears to care not at all about Richard Nixon. And in fact, as I sort of trace in the book, there are these fascinating moments when Mark Felt knows damaging Nixon information, information that would harm Richard Nixon, and doesn't tell Woodward and Bernstein because that information doesn't hurt Pat Gray. And right. so sort of everything ends up being funneled through this lens of, does this hurt Pat Gray? And if so, I'll leak it to Woodward and Bernstein. And if not, uh, I'm going to keep it to myself. And most amazingly of all, this was one of the things that like really blew my mind as you sort of think about the way that history turns and unfolds. Mark Felt doesn't even start with leaking to Woodward and Bernstein. That in fact, he starts leaking to the Washington Post's crosstown rival, the Washington Daily News, Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that in the summer of 72, amid the newspaper wars of the 1970s, the Daily News shuts down and that instead, uh, now sort of without anyone else to turn to, he turns to Bob Woodward. Um, and it's sort of this amazing moment to me of, you know, if the Washington Daily News had kept uh, in publication that summer, you know, would history have ever remembered Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein? So I don't want to crap on the Felt family legacy too much, but did you trade, you know, we know that J. Edgar Hoover was uh, an, an extremely influential person. He used a whole bunch of what Nixon would call dirty tricks. He used flatly extra legal procedures to advance his own power. To what extent was Mark Felt implicated in J. Edgar Hoover's very let's say, problematic, extra-legal, uh, non-democratic impulses and, and actions. And, and this becomes actually one of the you know, most important chapters in the FBI's history, which is the backdrop of so much of Watergate and the abuses of power and the sort of collapse of American institutional trust in the presidency and the government that unfolds afterwards is all of the uh, civilian privacy and civil liberties abuses of the FBI and the CIA in the post-war era that comes out as part of the Watergate scandal. And so Mark Felt, alongside two other FBI officials, ironically including Pat Gray, end up being indicted for abuse of power much later in the 1970s as part of the investigations that sort of spin out after Watergate, the, the Church Committee, the Pike Committee, sort of these 
airings of the intelligence communities and law enforcement's dirty laundry. And Mark Felt uh, and Pat Gray um, and a third FBI official end up being indicted for uh, their attempts to spy on groups like the Black Panthers um, in the 1970s um, using techniques that the FBI had long used that were, you know, the, the polite way of saying it is extra legal. Um, but what that really is, is code for illegal. Um, that these sort of illegal surveillance techniques that they had been trying to use against, you know, subversives and domestic extremists um, and, and political enemies that they were worried about and trying to monitor. So here's a conclusion I drew. Uh, you led me there. Thank you. That Richard Nixon, I wonder to what extent Richard Nixon, I don't want to look at him on the continuum of, you know, good person, bad person, or legal or illegal. Let's say we all assume that politics is an amoral action. It's all about power. Whatever you do to get ahead and advance your agenda, however you define your agenda, that's winning the game. I don't know that Richard Nixon was actually that good even at the amoral advancing of power. I mean, he made an enemy in Mark Felt, for instance, not because Felt was good, Nixon was bad, but just because he was, you know, Nixon didn't really understand all the subtleties of uh, that particular agency and everything that was going on. Then there's the fact that Nixon got caught. Then there's how often you document his personality and the, and the just fits of rage, and I think a lot of the irrational decisions. Was Richard Nixon that skilled an operator? Yeah, it's a really good question, and it's one that I sort of wrestled with as I uh, as I wrote this and as I researched it, because you know Nixon is one of the most fascinating character studies of any president in uh, you know probably American history. He is this enormously complex figure, this very strange mix of light and dark and optimism and paranoia and, you know, consequential on the global stage. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the man who reopens China, the first president to visit Moscow, the first president to visit a communist country, um, you know, as you said, you know, the, the guy who, you know, creates the EPA, who signs the Title IX legislation, you know, he did more to bring women into government than any president in the second half of the 20th century. Yet at the same time, behind closed doors, as we know from the Nixon tapes that he, you know, he himself installed the recording system that sort of ends up being his own downfall. You know, he's ranting about the Jews and the blacks and I mean, saying some of the most vile things that we have ever seen a president actually say um, you know, behind closed doors. And, and part of the challenge of it is Nixon, you know, really sees himself as a grand diplomat, that he sort of sees the presidency as something that is primarily about foreign policy. And so he doesn't care at all about domestic policy. And, and a big part of the challenge and the downfall that sort of comes as he surrounds himself with, with all of these aides who should have no business being close to the uh, to the White House is he just doesn't care about large portions of the presidency and so doesn't care who is really leading them. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I think it ends up being this question of, 
you know, how good is he as a sort of political strategist? And I think in many ways it is, you know, analogous in some ways to the same debate that we've had over the last five years about, uh, you know, Donald Trump. You know, is is Donald Trump playing 9D chess against us all of the time? Or did he just sort of understand better than anyone that America was ready for some real strong nativism and, it, you know, is able to sort of, uh, you know, cut through a bunch of other issues that don't really matter to and sort of focus in on the one thing that does. See, I don't think that he's actually that much like Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump is playing chess. Someone once said he's playing hungry, hungry hippos and eating the pieces. I think that Nixon was not just speaking about, but playing checkers. And he was pretty good at checkers. And checkers was making speeches that appeal to your base and, you know, effectively running aspects of the government that people recognize and say, oh, that's pretty good. I'm going to vote for you. And a lot of the ugly stuff about, you know, claiming that black people were or strongly implying that we're under siege by a rising tide of black lawlessness, let's say. But I think it was pretty good at the regular politician stuff and pretty bad at the background knifing your enemies in the back stuff. Yeah. And, and I think part of the weirdness of Richard Nixon is that so much of his paranoia comes from this idea that uh, you know, where we started yesterday's conversation talking about Dick Tuck and his dirty tricks <laughs> against Nixon, that the idea was that all of these things were being done to Richard Nixon and that Nixon, you know, needed to play as dirty as the people who were targeting him when, in fact, often Richard Nixon was the only one playing dirty at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that he he sort of... Uh, so much of his abuse of power and his criminality comes out of this idea that his enemies were targeting him unfairly, when in fact, that does not turn out to be true. Right. So in terms of how there was actual accountability, and it's impossible not to compare it to the past president and his impeachments. Um, and this was this was a thesis that I think uh, Leon, Nafax, Slowburn, and other sources convinced me of. The big difference was that politics were different. The Republican Party was different. Part of it was just that it wasn't so ideologically sorted. But, and I mean sorted with T's, not D, sorted, but it still works on both levels. But it was just that there was a correct assessment that the worse Nixon did, the worse it would be for those in his party. His party eventually turned on him or at least demanded accountability. And then that was it. The cover-up wasn't possible. To what extent do you subscribe to that analysis? Yeah. And I think to me, this is part of what makes this book so fascinating to me. <laughs> and this, this story is that in many ways, I think the story of Watergate is the most fascinating story of how power actually unfolds in Washington. Because what you see play out over the course of Watergate is this very intricate dance of how American government actually works and the way that checks and balances operate, the way that co-equal branches of government can hold each other to account. And the idea of all of the institutions that come together to force Richard Dixon from the presidency 
succeed where none of them could succeed on their own. You know, it takes the media, it takes the courts, it takes the Justice Department, it takes the House, it takes the Senate. All of these institutions have their own unique role to play. And it also takes, by the way, both Democrats and Republicans. And I think sort of one of the things that really stands out to me in this story is how Washington actually worked then. And what I mean by that is that you saw people rise above party. You saw people uh, like Lil Weicker and Barry Goldwater and Howard Baker, um, you know, uh, Republicans be willing to hold their own president to account. And I think that there is this uh, sort of fascinating lesson for me and for us as a country about sort of the difference between then and now and how Washington was able to accomplish this in 1972 and be unable to accomplish it during either of the Trump impeachments. The name of the book is Watergate, A New History. It was written to solve the problem of, quote, I've always thought Watergate's a really complicated story and there's not a really good one volume that tells it. All great products solve the problem. This was the problem the book solved and the solver slash author is Garrett M. Graff. Thanks so much, Garrett. Thanks so much for having me. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com ah hmm the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now the spiel. The COVID vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds is a game changer, but it changed the game to a soaking wet speak and spell. What I'm saying is it doesn't work. For parents of young children, unsettling news. New data from New York State shows the only COVID vaccine children 5 to 11 can take, made by Pfizer, offers almost no protection against infection. No, it's not unsettling, nor is it the word that Hoda Kotb said on the Today Show. According to an alarming new study conducted by New York State, former CDC director Rich Besser corrected her. Yeah, I mean, first, I, I would not use the term alarming. I would, I would use the, the term disappointing. 
And disappointing is closer. How about ineffective? The results are the vaccine doesn't work. There's some evidence it might prevent serious infection, more on that in a second, but the headline from a New York State study of hundreds of thousands of kids who were given the vaccine showed that less than two months after taking the vaccine, five to 11-year-olds were just 12% better off than the unvaccinated, which is to say the vaccine the kids got basically didn't work at least against Omicron, which is the dominant variant during testing. But why? Well, adults, which includes kids 12 to 17, all got a 30 microgram dose. The teenager's dose is the same as adults, 30 micrograms. The kids, the 5 to 11-year-olds, had their dose reduced by two-thirds, 10 micrograms. If you got the full dose, so if you're a 12-year-old who got the full dose, and these are literally the stats for 12-year-olds, the vaccine was 67% effective. If you're an 11-year-old, same humans as 12-year-olds, an inch shorter, their dose, their 10-microgram dose, was 11% effective, i.e. not effective, much smaller doses, totally different outcomes. But the New York Times quoted Florian Kramer, an immunologist at Mount Sinai Hospital, and the quote is, this is super interesting because it would almost suggest that it's the dose that makes the difference. Almost suggest treads upon a strong inference, it goes right up to the line of, if not outright asserting, certainly implying, uh, you hear the tone of voice, right? You hear the riffing, the bludgeoning of the same sentence. You know what that means. It's time to trigger beloved just segment, overly sarcastic corner. It's now time for everyone's favorite segment. It's the overly sarcastic corner. The overly sarcastic corner. The overly sarcastic corner. The overly sarcastic corner. Now, I was asking a question sarcastically to reporters like you just to see what would happen. This is super interesting. It's a thinker. See, you're not a medical researcher. You might not see it how Florian Kramer sees it. It would suggest that the dose makes the difference. And now we'll go back to the New York Times. He, of course, said it almost suggests the dose makes the difference. And then he goes on to say, he added, quote, the question is how to fix that. I don't know. How would I know? We got 30 ounces that work. We got 10 ounces that don't work. What could the fix be? Uh, Let me throw this out there. Why don't we decrease the kids' doses from 10 to 5? That could make the difference. I don't know. I'm not an immunologist. Now, if you're listening in here in this sarcastic, total overly sarcastic corner, you might be saying, I'm not an immunologist either. But statistically speaking, we have tens and not in the low tens, mid to high tens, thousands of listeners. You might be an immunologist. So if you are and are at a listening party with, say, a cartographer and a phlebotomist, be quiet. You know the answer. How, how, how to fix it? Hmm. Okay. All jokes aside, and let us now exit the overly sarcastic corner. Let's tread onto Ernest cul-de-sac here. There are three important things to know beyond the big one, 
It's kind of important to know that the New York thing is not a peer-reviewed study, okay? But also, there's a second set of numbers from 10 states that aren't New York, also not peer-reviewed, but the CDC put it out and pointed to it. And they say that vaccinated 5 to 11-year-olds are protected, or at least similarly protected, against hospitalization as older kids, the 12 to 17-year-olds. Even the original New York study said the vaccine is 48% effective in preventing 5 to 11-year-olds who've taken it to be hospitalized. Now, there are a lot of buts and ifs and qualifications with those numbers, including that the younger kids vaccine wasn't authorized until later than the teenagers was. So maybe they're only doing good relatively because the teenagers vaccine is waning. And here's a big fact that even among unvaccinated five to 11 year olds and unvaccinated because we're talking about a period when the vaccine wasn't available, if you look at hospitalization or ICUs or death from COVID, it's not zero, but it's low. It's so low that when you compare it to the common flu, in every one of the three years before COVID-19 hit, COVID-19 was not nearly as dangerous as the common flu. More kids were hospitalized. More kids were put on ventilators. More kids died from the common flu than they are from COVID-19 or that they were even before vaccines became available. So what this says to me is that we have a vaccine that I'm going to want to almost say might not be working. Okay, I'll go out on that limb. Okay, I'm pulling it back. Maybe I want to say, do you know what I mean? So that's frustrating. You'd want the vaccines to work. But take into account that the background condition is riskier than this new troubling scourge for which we don't have all the answers when it comes to kids. But we do have all the necessary perspective, or at least we should. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist and the Barry Manilow Fellow for Jingle Production. Joel Patterson is the Gist senior producer. Thanks, Einstein. Michelle Pesca is the associate director of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu And thanks for listening. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.